Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. We heard from Amy Taubin at the beginning of this CAM series, and now that the festival has wound down, I got together with Amy once more. This time, we take a moment to single out some strong movies that haven't received the same amount of attention as your Benedetta or your Titan, for example. That includes a remarkable group of films set in Latin America, Prayers for the Stolen, La Seville, and Clara Sola. We also talk about the Bangladeshi drama Rihanna, and Amy gives a few preliminary thoughts on a much-anticipated title that arrived later in the festival. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, continuing the Cannes series, winding down, uh, wrapping up. I mean, the festival by this point when we're recording is over, um, but there you know, were a lot of films we're talking about, so we're going to talk about a few. And I'm very pleased to have Amy Taubin uh, to come talk about them. Hello, Amy. Hi, Nick. And I'm very happy to talk about these films by Latin American women. Yes. So there were, I think... Three in particular that you wanted to... I think I've only seen one of them, so um, I can chime in a little there. Uh, that would be Prayers for the Stolen, uh, Tatiana Hueso. Wh- which one would you like to start with, or just if you want to talk generally? Well, since you mentioned Prayers for the Stolen, uh, we could start with it. These are two films that take place in Mexico. La Seville, the director's name is Arcelia Ramirez. The Darden brothers and Christian... Manju are co-producers with the Latin producers. So that has a really interesting way it comes together. I can see why those two much more well-known directors, the Dardens and Manju, were interested in this. Uh, And I believe it's a first film. Uh, Tatiana's film is not a first film. She's made two documentaries before, but it's a first fiction feature press for the stolen. And then the third film is quite different from these because it's not based in, you know, a major political real world situation. Clara Sola uh, and the director is Natalie Alvarez Messen and Oscilloscope picked it up it stayed with me for a long time, and it's um, it's an extremely painful film. Painful in a different way than the other two films. All, all three of these are really painful films. Mm. I mean, they're about terrible situations that women are in, and largely mothers and daughters. So, Press for the Stolen, the situation is... These are families essentially without men. The men have gone across the border to the U.S. or they're just gone in one way or another. And it covers a fairly long period of time so that the daughters start out with one set of actresses, you know, really in their 8, 9, 10 area. And then in the second half of the film, they are teenagers. And... The film focuses particularly on one mother and one daughter. And they live in Mexico in a place where the cartels are running rampant. And the only jobs for them is working in the poppy fields. And 
when they work in the poppy fields, the government, the army, the military planes pour poison down. But they kind of avoid the poppies. It's the neighboring crops because it becomes clear that the army is really in cahoots with uh, the cartels. And the thing about the cartels is when the daughters get to be teenagers, they are kidnapped and, you know, used uh, as essentially as sex slaves or murdered. And so the mothers hide their daughters and they do everything to try to make them look like little boys. They cut their hair, et cetera, et cetera. But the film begins with one daughter having been already stolen. And that hangs over the film, even though in parts, these girls growing up are like girls growing up and they kind of run wild in the streets uh, in groups and they go to school. There is a school there. And the most heartbreaking part is that for about two minutes, the central girl who is, I mean, I presume she's never acted before and is really wonderful. And she has a moment where she wants to be a teacher. And then it's so clear that this will never happen. Mm. Uh, And the mother keeps being tempted to take her and to just leave this place and go to some refugee camp or some town you know, where the cartels are not that powerful because that's where the school teacher eventually goes if he isn't dead, and I'm not sure if he's dead or if he's gotten away. But the mother can't bring herself to leave, and she works in the poppy fields, and eventually her daughter does too. That's it. Yeah. What got me in this film is how it sticks to the child's POV. Yeah. And, and that becomes, like, so painful, you know, uh, just because you're aware of so much more and, uh, you know, feeling like you're carrying the burden of all that the child's going to face or might face. I mean, I, I vividly remember when they're getting their haircuts and, mm-hmm. you know, the girls are not happy <laughs> because they're getting these, like, shorn cuts that are just kind of all these kind of uniform cuts it can't be explained to them at that point why exactly that's happening. It's just happening. I think they give the excuse that it's for lice, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they do. So that scene is, yeah, it's just really rough. It also is, there is this thing which is very subtle about, you know, girls wanting to be attractive. And one of this group of three girls um, has a cleft palate. And it's a very big deal when the doctors finally, because the doctors uh, have left this town just thinking it was hopeless. And they finally come back. And when they come back, they're bombed by the cartels and they're surrounded by government troops to be there at all. But one of the things they do is they fix her cleft palate Mm -hmm. so that when you see her older as two or three years older, she's really beautiful and she is kidnapped uh, in the second half of the film. So there is this issue that maybe is not spelled out in words, but why it is dangerous to be attractive. Yeah. 
and 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 because it's from the kids' perspective, there's all sorts of just menace and danger that they just have to kind of absorb. And I mean, they can't always even have much of an emotional reaction to it because they don't even understand it. Right. <laughs> um, and and that's something that I thought was really effective about the movies. That and and even because because it's that close to their POV, things happen where you have to piece together. The uh, collusion that's going on, for example. So things look kind of. There, I, I remember there's some encounter between the cartel and the, and the government, and it looks like it's going to be a shootout, but really they just like get out and like I don't know, talk to each other before. Mm -hmm. um, and there's all kinds of things like that, and it's just things that you have to live with. And and she does uh, interesting things with with the camera work as well. I mean, sometimes you know subtly in terms of perspective, but and, and then there's also I remember a couple of remarkable shots just running along with with the main girl actress oh yeah when they run i mean they run a lot in the movie mm -hmm. they run on these trails through the woods mm -hmm. um and sometimes they're running away from something that's chasing after them or uh something they hear they know something bad is coming and so they're running to safety but often they're running the way kids run you know yeah yeah uh just with huge amount of energy <laughs> yeah and it is interesting that uh tatiana Oiso she has this kind of documentary background and documentary practice um i think she teaches and has written a book about it as well and it, it, you know it's interesting i was reading an interview somewhere with her where she was talking about some of the touches a couple of touches that she was happy with because it's something she couldn't do in a documentary and i guess one of these is imagining that the children have kind of fun with telepathy you know trying to guess each other's thoughts um, uh -huh. and I, I i really like those scenes and i do think that they're really kind of i don't know necessary for the movie in a way that so that it doesn't just feel like it's this kind of grim anatomy of a community you know under siege that it really puts you inside their heads and, and it, i don't know for me it was a kind of a way of feeling one's way into another connection between people that's somehow protected from all of that. I don't know. Those scenes I thought were kind of interesting. Well, La Civile is grimmer. Mm. Much grimmer. Same situation in Mexico. But with this, you begin with a mother and daughter, and it begins kind of, you know, it's a mother with her teenage daughter, and it's clear that they have a good relationship, but the teenage daughter is willful and wants to go out at night. And they are, in relation to this village, they aren't poor. You know, they have a really kind of nice house, and they're not hurting for money, and they have a relative who is kind of uh, a protector in, in the village hierarchy. Anyway, the teenager, she wants to go out with her friends at night and go on down the road. It's always down the road to somewhere. But she doesn't come back. She does not come back. And this is the beginning, pretty much the beginning of the film. And it's soon clear that she has been kidnapped by the cartels. Uh, and particularly by one of the most terrifying young actors I've ever seen, who claims to be working for, you know, the head of a major cartel, but 
he seems to be the head of the unit that is in this town. And I very seldom say that people are evil, but this kid is evil. And he Mm. tells the mother that her daughter is kidnapped and she better come up with this amount of money and um, or she'll never see her again. Uh, And of course, the demands escalate and the mother has to involve other people in this, even though she's not allowed. And then the film changes. And the entire film is her looking for her daughter. But at a certain point, she does what she's not supposed to do. And a new guy comes to the town who is the head of some state police. And he enlists her to help them get to the person who has taken her daughter. And it turns into an action film. And it turns into an action film with this woman at the center of the action. And so she is out with the police and she's doing all these extremely dangerous things, basically going into places, into stores and other places that you know the cartels run and asking if people have seen her daughter and then finding out who these people are paying off And that goes on for quite a long time. And then there are some big action scenes. And we're in, I've just, in prayers for the stolen, there are also action scenes, but they don't really involve the main characters. This is her first fiction feature, and she has all these scenes with major air force flying over the poppies fields, you know? Uh, That's in prayers for the stolen. Helicopters, yeah. Yeah. And small planes, too. La Seville is different in that it has real action scenes, shoot-em-out-ups. And and this actor who plays the mother is fantastic. I was just flashing back to uh, Miss Bala. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of glamorized because of the central character. Right, yeah. These aren't glamorized at all, but the actor, the main actress in La Seville is really, she becomes this really tough person Mm. um, in a way that, you know, her development is the thing that's so amazing about the film and so amazing about the performance as well. These two films, Prayers for the Stolen and La Seville, they both won smallish prizes in a certain regard. They won different prizes, but both of them won not the major, not best director and not best film, but special prizes, both Mm -hmm. of them. And I thought that was a jury who refused to give a prize to one, if not to the other. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, we can can talk a bit about that later on, the uh, interesting- uh, Jury. (laughs) (laughs) Shakeout. So yeah, so that's uh, La Civile. Which I think has a lot of potential as, um, I don't know what you call these films anymore, a foreign art film, because it really is, um, it turns into an action film made by a woman with a female hero. Mm. But it's a Darden kind of action film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is extremely, the aesthetic is quite spare and quite realist. 
Mm -hmm. That director, Teo, Teodora Anna Mihai. Oh, she's Belgian-Romanian. Uh-huh. So then that brings us to the third film uh, in this trio, Clarisola. Clarisola, which takes place in Costa Rica mm -hmm. um, and is very different from the other two. And the director is Natalie Alvarez Messen. And I was interested that Oscilloscope picked it up. So they must see that it has some release potential. And I'm really glad of it because I think it's a really strong film. But mm. of the three, it is the most nightmarish mm. uh, and very different. So it takes place in a small village in Costa Rica in a really jungle area. And Clara, this heroine, is 40 years old and she was born with a severe scoliosis so that her spine is really twisted. But her mother and her aunt they exploit her as a, as a saint, as they believe they've used her as she has magical powers. She can, you know, she's been blessed. She's whatever this mystical form of Catholicism is, she has powers. And as a result, she's treated as if she's an infant, really. And they... The first scene in the movie is very telling because the doctors say she, she will certainly die if she doesn't have surgery to fix her spine. And actually, it's not a difficult operation. And they just say, no, she's been touched by God and they will not have it. And then you realize that they, may, they generate whatever income they have from, you know, people who come to see her uh, mm. and also to see this beautiful white horse uh, who also is supposed to have magical powers and who only she can handle. And in the course of the movie, it becomes clear that not only are they exploiting her, but they, well, I don't know how to say this. If this were really a genre film, it would be carried in the Costa Rican jungle, oh, wow. you know, with the same outcome. Okay. But it's not never amusing in the way that genre movies are amusing and they can be powerful and mythic, but, you know, genre movies, there's, you always have a certain distance from them. Mm -hmm. There is no distance in this movie whatsoever. And gradually, you realize what they've done to her, and she becomes interested in a guy who works there, who's come to, I don't know, he's in the village, and he's a kind of handyman, and he takes care of the horse or whatever. And he's fascinated by her, and he's extremely kind to her, but she's in love with him. Hmm. I mean, one thing I was curious about to hear about was the uh, was the, the actress or, and, and her performance of, of the character because I was reading that that was that was a highlight. Uh, she is amazing. She is really amazing. I do not know how much she's done, 
but part of her performance has to be physical because the thing is she is not grotesquely her body is not grotesquely twisted it's just limited in the kind of movements it can make hmm. and the problem is that it's getting worse and eventually her spine is going to collapse into her lungs and she'll be dead so the kind of finding that balance and finding that balance you know when this is a 40-year-old woman who does not know that you have a period and just bleeds uh and they act as if it's something that you know has to do with her sainthood or something and the end of this film was just devastating i mean i really could see it coming but i did not want to be devastated and i kept thinking do not have the felicity parrot moment do not do this do not do this and of course i did uh-huh. um but um it doesn't matter it it's yeah wow now it's sort of making me think about the other two films i mean i only know one of them the place of uh religion or spirituality in in those two films and i mean in prayers for the stolen i don't really remember it that much it's almost as if things just feel so desperate that the connection the girls have is is more playful it's not really like based in some sort of religious connection i don't know no there the in neither of the mexican films is there any any kind of religion at all at a certain point in la civil you see that the local priest like everyone else is completely corrupted by the cartels mm. but it's not that they make more of that than everyone is either in their pay or murdered right yeah a double bind existence where you know no no real way out so those are three films that we grouped together a prayers for the stolen la civil and then clara sola and and then i mean i kind of threw out the idea that um it might be interesting to talk about uh, another movie which is shot and made uh, and kind of makes a lot of its of its location uh, which is memoria um <laughs> but that's of course directed by Peter Pan Grossethical and it's his first movie out of outside of Thailand and it's it's shot in Colombia and i mean the reason i brought it up is partly because i was uh, reading an interview with one of the producers who i think is Colombian and you know far from it being one of these things where you know it's an international production so you have a producer from here a producer from where it's being shot etc um she was talking about it really as a movie that felt colombian to her in a way um uh-huh. i'm i'm just going to read the quote because it kind of she says uh i believe that this is the most colombian film that i've made so far pecha pong was very sensitive and managed to capture something that is essential uh that runs through us as a country as a society as a culture i mean there is that moment in the movie where you know she goes this is Tilda Swinton who's visiting Colombia she is a florist but she's in the kind of academic surroundings because of uh her sister who's in the hospital at the university and her sister is married to or right yeah i think married to one of the academics there and and this excavation seems to be happening 
in a place where they thought they'd make a modern tunnel, and instead they came up with all these 6,000-year-old bones. Right. I mean, you know, I am not a terrific fan of this director, nor am I a terrific fan of slow cinema, of which he seems to be the archetype. But I thought this film was incredible. I just thought it was absolutely great. And um, I was interested that one of the producers is the Chinese director, Jia Zhangke. And there's something that happens in the movie that I don't think we should give away. That has always been a question about something that happens in a movie uh, by Jia Zhangke. And Mm -hmm. it happens here as well. And I would have liked to have been part of that conversation where these two directors talked about this futuristic thing. Yeah. The the premise of the movie is that Tilda Swinton's character hears these essentially very loud bang noises that could be anything but are quite terrifying, like someone has just blasted dynamite next to your house. Yeah. Um, and she hears this often, and no one else does. And so she is trying to find out what this is and why this is happening. And she goes to various people, not necessarily to try to find out, but somehow it comes out that she's having this experience. But one of the people that she tells about it is a doctor. And it's a doctor played by a famous French actress who suddenly turns up in this movie in Colombia. Yeah, Jean Balibar. Yes. Anyway, (laughs) the most interesting thing in the film is that she finally finds out what is going on about her when she encounters this guy who remembers everything that has ever happened to him in detail, and therefore it's necessary for him to limit his experiences. Mm -hmm. And she begins to think that she has been there. She has an experience of deja vu, that she has been there to his little house before and that this terrible thing happened to her there when she was a four-year-old. And then he he explains that it never happened to her, but she is like an antenna. Mm. And what she has picked up, what her antenna has picked up is the entire history of Colombian experience and its future. So that all time is now, as she gathers it with this extrasensory capability she has to act as an antenna for everything. Mm. It is the most extraordinary mystical movie I've seen in a long time. I completely believed it. Yeah. And that's partly because of Tilda Swinton, who is an alien being. She was in the Peter Wallen film in Kent Classics, Friendship's Death. Wow, yeah. Where she actually is an alien. And just a remarkable, remarkable performance. And I'm sure she's the reason the film could get made, you know, and that finally he could get out of Thailand and get somewhere else and spend some money. <laughs> It's also so beautiful, it's shot on film. Yeah. And, you know, this is really a reflexive film and a kind of meta film. 
and it basically privileges sound. It's a film that's all about sound. That doesn't mean the images aren't very beautiful, but it really makes you listen. And it also has a great band in the middle. <laughs> yes. Um, and I mean, it's to the movie's credit that I did not once think of like blow up or blow out, you know, uh, before, during, or after. It's not in that school of, of art film somehow. It, well, it's, it's not a mystery in that way. Right. Mystical, but not a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I tell this one is really kind of a reserved character in this one. She like dials it all down. She's given a lot of time and space to react. And mm -hmm. um, there are like whole set pieces that are just her listening to something. And we're watching her kind of turn it around in her head and try to figure it out. And that was really wonderful to, to watch without feeling like that she was somehow like trying to match the an Pong movie. It, I, I feel like she was still creating her own her own thing with it. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. You know, there are some movies, I think you need to see this movie in a theater. I don't think you can see it on your home screen. Yeah. And in part that has to do with the sound image relationship has to be exactly right. Uh, and so the image has to be big enough to take that very loud sound that happens. That sound has to shake the image. Mm -hmm. And unless you have the most extraordinary home system, I just don't think you can play this and understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, so true. they're going to have to do something like put it in theaters. Yeah, I think you're right. You're going to have to feel it. Also, somehow, a theater feels doubly appropriate since there are tunnel scenes in the movie that really look great when you're sitting in the theater. It's just like the theater extends into the into the screen somehow. Um, and then there was just one more movie that we were catching up with. I, I read very little about it. I think it I think it's screened a little early. Um, it's I think a Bangladeshi director, Abdullah Mohammed Saad. I think it was the first Bangladeshi film in a certain regard. Right. There okay. might have been Bangladeshi films in other sections. Yeah. And it got picked up. It got picked up by Grasshopper and Gratitude Films. Yeah. It centers on a main character who is a, a assistant professor in a medical school. And she is kind of mired in the stress of her job, uh, which includes like dealing with student exams and just catches a student cheating and she cracks down on it, which has its own repercussions. And she has another student who's, she kind of pieces together that the professor took advantage of the student in his office. And so, she, um, you know, the main character of this movie is trying to hold him to account for this. And this is very hard in the like conservative administration. Um, they, they don't really want to pursue it. And it's also very hard because the girl, the young woman who uh, he took advantage of it, does not want to tell. Right. Because she knows that her life will be made horrible if she did that. And so she will not back up the woman professor's suspicions and the accusation. Um, 
what's weird about this? I mean, this is a very Stalin. This is Stalinist feminism. <laughs> this movie. She is so. She absolutely will not give an inch, uh, in terms of seeing any kind of larger picture. Not only how she is wrecking her own life by doing this, and that probably is why she pursues going ahead doing it, because everyone tells her, you know, she will get fired for this. Mm-hmm. She will lose her job that she's good at. She doesn't have. You know, her husband is gone, or mm-hmm. I think he's dead. She has a six-year-old daughter who's in a bad school uh, because she can't afford to send her to, in quotes, a good English school. And so her life is pretty messy already, and it's only going to get worse if she pursues this and the lives of the students who are going to, the female students who are going to be involved, their lives will be a mess as well. And yet she refuses to let this guy get away with what she believes he has done. And I I think it's also worth uh, mentioning that the style of the movie is quite tension inducing I found I mean again I this is a movie I had to catch up with on a link so I, I you know I can't totally vouch for everything about it but it's very it's almost blue tinted I want to say um, yeah it is it's it's curious and and a lot I think I want to say almost all of it unfolds on the grounds of this university um, so it's this pretty intensely claustrophobic experience of her, you know, moving from one conversation, one hallway to the next. I, I don't even know how many days it must span over because it feels very um, compressed and pressurized. Yeah. And even the way things are cut together, it's true to the tension and the kind of shattered nerves of her trying to stay on top of everything. And this is not at all like his movies, but I, I did, because they often have a, you know, follow kind of over-the-shoulder camera work as she moves through the university. And also because of her frayed nerves, I did kind of think of Lodge Kerrigan a a little bit. Um, But, yeah, that that was just just me. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, there there are just points in this movie where you just want to shake her, particularly around the explanation of the the young woman who the teacher believes has cheated on her exam. And so she's expelled her, which is something that people don't seem usually to do. And she's told that this girl, this young woman panics on exams and she always fails her exams and her parents are poor and she's there on scholarship. And if she doesn't make it through, Uh, terrible things will happen to her, and so she can't stand the pressure of the exam. And still this teacher goes ahead and expels her. And at that point, you really turn against this character. I don't turn against her for wanting to uh, call out the male professor who has clearly done something with the other student who's trying to save her friend from being expelled. And so she goes to him in his office and tells him she's been expelled. 
can you do something about it? And he kind of puts his hands down her dress. Uh, you never see this. You only hear about this. Mm. Um, but this whole thing about her being incapable of understanding how someone would panic on an exam and should not be expelled for panicking and for just writing herself a couple of notes on her ruler, like I've done here, sitting here, because I never remember a single proper name anymore. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's a severity uh, to to her uh, pedagogy, but I guess, I don't know, to her administration. In a, yeah, in other words, you do not like this character. This is a character who is in a terrible bind because of patriarchy. She comes up against patriarchy at every turn, and she tries to be tough, and courageous and refusing to yield in any way, you don't like her. I mean, what what do you think of that? <laughs> what do you think of that as, as a movie, you know, setting that up, setting up that challenge where here is a person who is trying to do the just and right thing. And yet that, maybe that's part of why I found this a kind of a gnarly, um, you know, intriguing, but kind of gnarly film. I don't know. Yeah. I think I think gnarly is the word. Yeah. <laughs> That's the full quote. I don't know if they'll take it, but there it is. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention about the movie uh, is that there is also a, a strong scene later in the movie, which I thought maybe illuminated her character a little bit, where she is it she herself is in a hospital and she is visited by relatives and all the relatives do while they're there is kind of yammer on about other relatives and who's getting married or who should get married or this husband who had to lie about his wife's kidneys or this or that. And just while she's kind of sitting there, you know, not in great shape um, and they're just kind of plowing forward. And I felt there was something about the uh, just kind of familial oppressiveness of that, that made me think it's, it's a lot to grow up with, let's say absorbing that tension and those kind of that kind of strictness um because they're also talking about her brother who is mentioned um rihanna's brother helps her with child care and other things and her brother's not married so they talk about her brother and they talk pretty kind of bluntly about oh you don't want what is it you don't want it that it's a bad thing if your wife is educated and works Yes. And if she is, then she has to know that she has to make you breakfast and dinner anyway, even right. though she has a job that she's at 12 hours a day. So there are different levels in this film or different situations mm -hmm. in which patriarchy is spelled out. It's spelled out and largely spelled out by women. I mean, it's spelled out by the assistant principal of the school where she teaches who really wants to keep her there but only if she'll apologize or only if she'll keep her mouth shut mm -hmm. about the professor and tells her what she's going to face if she doesn't bend in this way yeah and so there are all kinds of situations in which the issue of this being a patriarchal society and the men it's just weighted so the men are going to win in every situation uh, comes up over and over again in different ways. Yeah, yeah, that's why I said it's a kind of Stalinist movie. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
there was, I mean, some of the dialogue in that scene too, because the, I don't know if it's her mom or an aunt or cousin. She talks about Mr. Pseudo liberal is her put down of her husband. (laughs) Um, And, and then the, the scene ends with this great line of, you know, oh, it's just another us versus them world. And they say, that's what we're going to face is just a world of us. That, and, and then the, the uh, her relative says, wait, who's us and who's them? I don't know. <laughs> it's really unexpectedly funny to me. But yeah, that's it is. That's what it is. The house always wins. And in, in this case, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, very much a movie. I'm kind of I'm eager to see talked about and, and to see have people uh, seeing it. So it's good that uh, Grasshopper will be uh, putting it out in the world. Uh, in the U.S. So I want to do a correction. Yes, uh, please. Last time I was on, I talked about Another Gaze, which is both a print and an online magazine out of Britain. And they have also, they started after the pandemic started, Another Scream, which I think has been just streaming amazing yeah. programming. Uh, a lot of very hard to see and very hard to get subtitled French films, uh, documentaries, stuff that was on television, Duras, some early Italian films by women, all all the stuff was by women. And I made a mistake and said that because it was Laura Mulvey who told me about the site. And so I presumed that it was attached to Birkbeck which is the graduate school where Laura taught for a long time, maybe still does teach. But it's not. It is totally independent of any institution. Uh, And it was founded by a woman, Daniela Schreyer, who also translated Chantal Ackerman's uh, autobiographical, My Mother Laughs. She translated it into English. Uh, And she does the whole thing with her co-editor, Missouri Williams. Uh, They have absolutely no institutional support. And right now they are in a bit of difficulty because uh, Vimeo says they've been using too much bandwidth. And so Vimeo wants to hold them up for a lot of money and they are trying to negotiate this. So I want to say that for two women, to be producing both a magazine of this quality and a streaming site this interesting is extraordinary. Uh, But it led me to another issue, which it has to do with independent film and work in general. Hmm. And it seemed to me that another screen is a micro cinema of a kind. It's Hmm. an online micro cinema. Yeah, And it made me start thinking about how independent filmmakers are coping with the fact that the kinds of places they would have shown work live in theaters and micro cinemas and, uh, you know, nonprofit institutions, that's pretty much being overshadowed by online viewing. And how are independent filmmakers going to cope with this and what kind of institutions, you know, run by individuals like these individuals will have to happen for people to get their work seen. Yeah. Uh, 
And I don't think anyone's really talking about that. So I was really interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. And also just getting, getting noticed, you know, even if, if one is able to get things out in the world and uh, streaming, um, I, I, I like the idea of being a, a micro cinema. I think that's really true. Uh, but like, that's, that's the, always the, the, the curse. That's the flip side of the universal access, but who knows it's there, you know? Right. Um, and how do you connect with people who would want to see it or even don't even know that they want to see it? Well, Someone who is very involved with getting documentary films out in the world told me something that I didn't know anything about it, and I think most people don't, unless you happen to be a documentary filmmaker. Amazon Prime, like YouTube, was allowing documentary filmmakers with absolutely no curation or watchdogs just to put their films up on Amazon Prime. And so... Amazon Prime was being used kind of the way the old filmmakers' co-ops were. You could put your film there. You, however, were responsible about drawing traffic to the site. So you had to do your own publicity or find someone to do it and let people know it was there. And then there was some kind of uh, financial arrangement between you and my Amazon Prime. And then Amazon Prime discovered that they were showing a bunch of anti-vaxxer movies and other movies that had content that they found questionable. And so their way of solving this, rather than saying, okay, we'll become curators, was to just say, we don't take any documentaries anymore on Amazon Prime. And that has... uh, put a big hole in the whole issue of if you're a documentary filmmaker and you're making a film that's probably not going to get picked up by a major distributor or by public television. But before, you could find all the people who were interested in, I don't know, small planes in the early part of the century and were collectors. And you'd just find them all and you'd put your film on Amazon Prime and then you'd have a huge mailing list of people who'd be interested in this subject matter and drive them to it. Well, that's no longer possible. And that is a really big deal. Yeah. When you're reliant and you just assume that this infrastructure is going to be there. And I mean, that also, uh, that all, I guess also extends to other ways, you know, people rely on Amazon for storage and that sort of thing. That, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, vast quantities of storage. We just rely upon the, the existence of, the, of that company. Um, and this is for them, you know, just a, the smallest of lines on, on, on a ledger, but uh, can cause just a void, an immediate void. I mean, I don't know. I hope as theaters and microcinemas can come back to life in the physical realm that some of these films maybe can circulate there or appear there. I hope so, but I'm kind of pessimistic about it. Yeah. All right. Well, that. <laughs> well, I, I guess sometimes it's uh, that's just the way it is. That's the note that we will <laughs> we'll conclude on. <laughs> I mean, I'm that's, sorry. I've been living in this kind of you know wonderland for like a week and a half, hearing about all these great movies and seeing a couple of them. But yeah, coming back to Earth, you know, smaller films that are not getting a showcase of of can. Or, or other big festivals, but are self-distributed or, you know, would it fit into what that particular festival is looking at, what another particular festival wants. Um, yeah, that's just a kind of fact of life. 
So that brings us to the end. And uh, I guess while we're at the end, we, we should talk a little bit about uh, the ending of Cannes, which is the award ceremony. And uh, this year, Spike Lee was the head of the jury, uh, which he stuck to after like not being able to do it last year because of COVID. He stayed with it and came, came this year. And so, yeah, I guess the big news is that the Palm d'Or winner was Titan. And Amy, I mean, what did you what did you make of that or any of the other awards? Well, I knew it was going to be Titan, and I was even in this betting pool in New York with some people who are in the business, but no one in this betting pool had gone to Cannes. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, so none of us had seen Titan, but I had seen the trailer, and you know, I know a little bit about what Spike thinks and what he likes and I said there was no way that he would not insist that the palm go to Titan and that turned out to be true and I won 50 bucks <laughs> <laughs> the smart money the smart money's on Titan well, so what was it about Titan that made you think that he just had he had to he was really going to push for it when I looked at the trailer I saw that it was gorgeously made and really startling and funny. You know, I mean, I haven't read any reviews. I think this movie must be extremely funny so that you have a movie with a really aggressive, sexually aggressive, out there female character who also sees the humor in this situation or the movie does, but it just seemed to me to be like about how come no one went here before? And a lot of Spike movies ask that question. How come no one has gone this far before? Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe I'll see the movie and think it's terrible because I certainly am not a fan of Raw. Oh, okay. Uh, which I found extremely stupid. <laughs> so, <laughs> and not really very well made and just, you know, like young and wanting to attract notice. But this mm-hmm. seemed to get over that problem. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the rest of the awards. There were a lot of them. There were a lot of ties. And that suggested that maybe this jury was very split. And I'm sure there were people on the jury that wanted Memorial to win, and it won uh, an important prize, but um, obviously not the biggest prize. And then, and it tied for that prize with some other movie. And then I was kind of surprised that Annette, that that movie won Best Director. Although, again, Spike having made so many failed musicals, and some not failed musicals would have understood the problems of making a musical. And I think probably likes that movie a lot. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I, I do see how that, that would, that would work. And that, I mean, that is also something that I I admire about his movies, the way you put it, you know, why hasn't someone gone this far with this or. But the best thing was that Spike wore running shoes on the red carpet 
every single night, including the awards night. <laughs> that was the best thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, there you have it. Those were the, the awards at Cannes. Um, but yeah, another shout out to Another Gaze. And just as a kind of wrap up in terms of where to go to, to read what, what you have next, um, are you going to be publishing something in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I'm going to write about Ken Jacobs, the venerable avant-garde filmmaker who has been probably more productive in these past two years than any other artist. He just never stops making work. So a couple of things are happening with getting Ken's work out. Kino Lorber has something called, uh, it's a double Blu-ray to Blu-ray package uh, with a really good essay by Jim Hoberman. And that covers a lot of Ken's work. I mean, Ken being a person who's makes now a film every single day. So, you know, you have 20 films on two Blu-rays. What is that? Uh, but <laughs> it has major work. And it also has very early work, which people have not, for the most part, seen. So it goes really from the late 50s to right now, all kinds of work. So I'm writing about that Blu-ray, but I'm also with it, uh, kind of previewing. Ken has uh, two shows coming up, one on August 1st at Momi, and then completely different films that are going to be projected in the garden of the Museum of Modern Art on August 6th. So I'm trying to wrap that into one piece for artforum.com. And that's what I'm working on. Great. We'll look out for that. All right. Well, uh, that, I think that, that ends our, our latest installment. And uh, Amy, uh, pleasure as always we will talk again soon i don't know if it's gonna be the next festival or just whatever we've been streaming into our brains next <laughs> thank you nick thank you you've been listening to the last thing i saw with your host nicholas Rapold. if you like what you heard please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com special thanks to the minarets for the opening music from their song montserrat thank you for listening